15. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. So follow along with me. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you desiring that you would open your word, that you would break the bread of life and feed it to us this morning, enable us by it to grow. Enable us to be a fruit-bearing people, Lord, and increasingly so in days to come. Father, I ask that you would draw people here to yourself. That you would allow us to see Jesus once again as we've seen him so many times in this gospel. So many facets of the glory of Christ have been visible to us. And so we pray that we would see it again this morning and we would be taken again and captured by the glory of Jesus Christ. And we would be sobered by where we are, that we would have an accurate assessment from your spirit of where we are in our Christian walk. Lord, we need so many things and we need them from you because we can't supply them of ourselves. Apart from you, we truly can do nothing. So, Lord. Help us here by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a familiar passage, John 15, probably to most of us. If you grew up in the church or a church like I grew up in, then you are very familiar with vine and branches and you were in VBS and you used construction paper to make vines and wrote your names of your family members who were in the church on the vine and And uh, you maybe even were subjected to sing the old vacation Bible school song. He's a peach of a savior. Anybody had to sing that inspired purportedly inspired by John 15. He's a peach of a savior. He's the apple of my eye. He prunes back the branches when the branches get too high. He bears fruit in season and his love will never die. And that's why I'm bananas for the Lord. Yeah. 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 (laughs) 
You know, rich in content as that song may be, it is, it is not the background track behind John 15. John 15 has a completely different tone than we might, at first glance, bring to it. So let's back up and try to get a sense of where we are. Again, we're, we're still in what's called Jesus' farewell discourse. So he's in the upper room. He's been incarnate walking around Palestine for roughly 33 years. He's been in ministry for about three years. And it's all been leading up to this moment. John's gospel frequently calls it his hour. And Jesus lives with a certain obsessive consciousness of this hour. He's always aware of where his life is in respect to the hour. And as you read through any of the Gospels, there's a certain momentum that's gathering. Uh, The drums start pounding faster and harder as you move toward the hour. And that's where we are. We are right at the verge of the hour. As a matter of fact, within about three hours from now, Jesus will be sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be praying to his father, speaking to his father. And for the first time, not only in his earthly life, but in all of the eternal relationship of the triune God. God, the father, will not talk back to him. And this signals to Jesus that the hour has officially begun. And so by tomorrow. He will be beaten beyond recognition. He will be scourged and flogged and mocked and abandoned by all of his friends. And most significantly, he will suffer under the fury of the full wrath of God, the just wrath of God against the sins of all of his people. That's coming up tomorrow. That's where we are in John 15. That happens tomorrow. By the end of the weekend, he will rise again. As the victorious conqueror over sin, death, and Satan. So there's a big weekend, right? This is, this is the epic weekend of all eternity. And it all begins a few hours from now. That's, that's a sense of the tone of what's going on here. You can back up and you can get the feel of this if you read John 14, the end of last chapter. And you ignore... The chapter breaks, which are, by the way, not inspired or infallible or inerrant. They are simply there for utility purposes for us to be able to find verses. John 14 gives us a sense of where John 15 goes. All right. So read this tone into abide in me. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. But I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Rise, let us go from here. This rise, let us go from here. uh, It's noted by scholar C.H. Dodd. Read this quote with me from Bruce Milne. Excuse me. Dodd notes That in normal Greek usage, this phrase implied, this phrase, rise, let us go from here, implied, let us go to meet the advancing enemy. 
a meaning exactly right for this setting. Jesus has just asserted that the prince of this world is coming. They now go to engage him. It is a call to arms. So as we come to John 15 and we hear Jesus saying, abide in me, realize Jesus has his game face on in this moment. This is this is a cosmically critical moment. He's going to be gone tomorrow effectively. And in a significant sense, the gospel mission passes to these men. These men who are with him in the upper room, they will be carrying the mission of the gospel tomorrow. And he wants to share in this last hour of his life, he wants to share mission critical truths with them. And by extension, these are mission critical truths that God wants to share with us. This is the setting that surrounds abide in me. Abide in me is not a text that simply tells you that you can have really great quiet times if you abide in me. You know, I had a really sweet time of abiding in Jesus this morning. No, it's it's about so much more than you having effective quiet times. Sometimes abide in me can be preached in a way that the image you get when you read through John 15 is Jesus leading the disciples in a yoga exercise. That's not what's going on. And this abide in me is not the disciples all, uh, you know, Sitting Indian style and trying to learn how to shut out the environment that it's not that way. Don't picture that kind of passive abiding. It's this is not the picture of, you know, you sitting in one of those long canoes that goes through Venice. You know, those really fancy canoes like in the Fabio commercial. I can't believe it's not butter. You know, that's that's not abide in me is not Jesus saying hop in the boat. And there's Jesus with the oar and he's holding an umbrella over your head. Uh, that's that's not what abiding me is about. There is a missional tone to this this abiding abiding in John 15 has to do with deriving strength and life from Christ so that you bear fruit in a spiritual climate where the destruction of faith and the distraction of faith is an everyday reality. Let me say that again. Abiding in Christ in John 15 has everything to do with deriving strength and life from Christ so that you bear fruit in a spiritual climate where the destruction of faith and the distraction of faith are everyday realities. Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. That's in 14. Later on in this same chapter, Jesus will say, look, all the things that you see the world And the mockers doing to me, albeit you'll see it from a distance, all the things you see them doing to me tomorrow, you're on deck. They're coming for you next. The servant is not greater than his master. What you see, the opposition of the world against me and my message is coming for you if you're faithful. And in John 16, 1, we can a very interesting interpretive piece because Jesus basically says to us in 16 verse 1, he gives us an interpretive key for the entire farewell discourse. Jesus, what's the farewell discourse about? What's, the, what's your burden for these people, for us, as we read the farewell discourse? Jesus tells you in John 16, 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So the farewell discourse is laden with ministry realism. It's it's laden with summons to vigilance. Watch out. Hold on. It's going to get rough. 
And it's laden with promises of presence and provision. That's what we're finding here. So this don't fall away to keep you from falling away should be seen to be the undercurrent of everything we're reading from John 13 all the way up to this moment and beyond. In other words, don't fall away and abandon the mission. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't fall away and abandon the mission. It's going to get ugly. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't abandon the mission. I'm sending the spirit. He will remind you of everything that I've said to you. He will be in you and dwell in you and you will do great works in my name. Don't fall away. Don't abandon the mission. Abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Don't fall away. And then we come to John 17 and Jesus stops talking to them. And he prays in front of them to his father. And what does he say? Father, don't let them fall away. Keep them. I have kept them in your name. I've guarded them. Now, Father, keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, all that said, the abide in me exhortation emerges in the context of spiritual opposition and the advancement of the gospel mission. Now, that brings us to John 15, verse 1. If I had to condense our passage into a single, simple statement, it would go something like this. Abiding in Christ leads to a fruit-bearing Christian life. Abiding in Christ leads to a fruit-bearing Christian life. To leave the metaphors behind, the abiding and the fruit metaphors, and unpack them a little bit, it would go like this. The Christian who by faith has been joined to Christ... There's the abiding piece. The Christian who by faith has been joined to Christ will grow in godliness. That's the same way of saying abiding in Christ leads to a fruit-bearing Christian life. So let's, let's dive in. <clears throat> We've got an organic metaphor going on here, right? A viticulture metaphor that's, that's being given. Let's do some quick, quick role casting. All right, who's, who's playing the role of the vine dresser? In this analogy, God, the father and the vine is Jesus and the branches are disciples, followers of Christ. If you're a Christian in this room, you may not have known when you came in that you were going to be in a drama. Turns out you are. You play the role of a branch in John 15. And Jesus begins, though, interestingly, when he begins to talk about Christian fruitfulness, he doesn't talk about branches. He begins by talking about the vine and the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. We see in verse one, the quality of this vine makes fruit bearing inevitable for every abiding branch. This is the true vine. There is no other vine that produces fruit like this vine. This is a vintage quality vine. In a sense, what we're getting from Christ here is a troubleshooting manual on the Christian life. In other words, if, if a branch isn't receiving life from the vine and thus bearing fruit, the problem is not the vine. Now, we can immediately just shift our excuses from, okay, all right, so the problem's not the vine, but, you know, this vine dresser, I'm not sure he knows what he's doing, right? And we can say, you know, he doesn't water me enough. I'm not sure that God's 
the way that God has been overseeing and superintending my branch has been best for me. I'm not, you know, I, I think, frankly, if God would get me married, I could be so incredibly godly. Uh, if he would just bring that blessing to my life, you probably people wouldn't even recognize me. I'd be so godly. You know, or, or we think we think of other people in their situations. Of life. Well, of course, they're bearing fruit. Look how easy their kids are. Or of, of sure. Yeah, they've got a healthy marriage, but they got so much money. They're not stressed out and fighting month after month about the fact that they've gone deeper into debt. They don't have that worry about that. So, of course, they're bearing fruit and much fruit. You see, we get this attitude and basically the implication of all of that is God's management of the affairs of my life has left me without the things I need to bear fruit and grow in godliness. Bottom line, if God would just move things around a little differently, I would bear fruit. But no, this vine dresser is perfect. The vine dresser in this case is God the Father. You can read the rest of John to find out more about his qualifications and about his character. He is a loving, wise, gracious God who knows how to give good gifts to his children. He is a God who blesses his children. And as the passage unfolds, we find that God as a vine dresser does two things to the branches. He cuts off dead, fruitless branches. It's one thing. And he cuts back and cleanses and prunes every branch that bears fruit. There, there are these every words that are used in verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, so every person who is a professing Christian in this room is having something done to you by God. The question is, what's he doing? And which branch are you? Are you the fruit-bearing branch or are you the fruitless branch? So, the vine is a vintage quality, fruit-producing vine, and the vine dresser knows exactly what to look for, and he knows how to maximize the fruit-bearing potential of every branch. He knows exactly how to make you bear more fruit than you ever dreamed you could bear. He knows what to do to make that happen. Incidentally, this is not the first time God has interacted with vines. There's a long history of God's interacting with vines. And you could read through the Old Testament, really the saga of God and a vine, but it's a bad vine. God is working with an old covenant people. Right? And there are allusions to this new covenant that one day will come and he's working with his old covenant people in the Old Testament. And Jesus' audience in John 15 would have known a lot about vines. Vines were, was a national symbol for Israel, much like the stars and stripes would be the symbol for the United States of America. That, the vine was a strong symbol in the culture of Israel, of God's people. But most significantly in Scripture, God repeatedly speaks of Israel as a vine, as his vine. Yet in every instance, the fruit that grew out of that vine in the Old Testament was always rotten. It was always spoiled. Let me read this to you. This is an appeal from God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. <clears throat> Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill 
He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Where's the problem here? Have I not cared for the vineyard? Have I not done my job as a vine dresser? He goes on to say, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. God is serious about life. God is serious about fruit bearing. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the external fruit was rotten. Why? Because the root was corrupt. God repeatedly pointed that out. And yet... There are these moments in Old Testament history where God alludes to a coming day where he will work again with a vine. And this time, the vine would spread throughout the earth and bear much fruit. And that wouldn't be because somehow God's people out in the future somewhere would get their act together. It would be because God himself would cause his son to spring forth from the soil of our own humanity and to accomplish a saving work so that all people, Jews and Gentiles, who put their faith in this vine, who trust themselves to this vine, will abide in him, will be attached to him, and will bear fruit for the glory of God. Listen to this allusion in Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, right? John 16, I write these things to you to keep you from falling away. Israel continually fell away from God. God says, I'm going to send this son of man, this one at my right hand. He will be a man of strength. And then we will not turn back from you. Give us life. Sound familiar? Give us life and we will call upon your name. And here he is in John 15, the man of God's right hand, the son of man, who has strength and life to give to his wayward and fruitless people. This is the true vine. And and yet here, once again, as with every other I am statement in the book of John, there have been six of them so far. Every time Jesus says, I am, it's a reference to his deity. Ego, a me. This is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus Usually when he says this, people pick up rocks because they know exactly what he means by that. And once again, Jesus says, I am. And this time he says, I am the vine. In other words, I am the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. I'm the guy Psalm 80 was talking about. Then he moves to the branches. 
There are two kinds of branches, and you see this as you track through. <coughs> There's a relationship in these two branches. The fruit-bearing branch is the branch that abides. That's the same branch. The fruit-bearing branch abides, and the abiding branch bears fruit, right? That's the same branch. And then there's another branch that is not fruit-bearing, and it's not fruit-bearing because it's not abiding, all right? And so these are the two branches. You can see in verse 2, non-fruit-bearing branches. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. There's that fruitless branch. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself <clears throat> unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And now he comes back to the fruitless branch, the one that he referred to in verse 2. If anyone does not abide in me. He is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So there is this taking away. First, he talks about fruitless branches, right? He said, I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Later on, he takes away. He cuts off and he throws in the fire. There's a solemn word here for us. There's a warning in this passage. And the cutting off of fruitless branches that are only artificially connected to the vine is not hypothetical. It is real. In fact, it's commentary on what just happened with Judas in John 13. If you want to hear a dead branch hit the ground, back up to the other side of your page and read John 13. And you hear snip, fall, Judas Shows his true colors in John 13, verse 30, when he leaves and abandons the fold. He shows his true colors. He was not connected. He looked like he was here. He looked like he was a part of the vine, that he was connected, but he was not bearing fruit. He was a dead branch. And, and <coughs> Jesus alludes to that with the same type of language he uses in John 15. Look in 13, verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Not every one of you are clean. Who is he referring to? He's referring to Judas. Look at verse 11. It tells us that. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, sadly, this is not an uncommon event for the book of John, for the New Testament church, or for us. You can turn back in John 6. You can see Jesus feeding the 5,000. <coughs> they say, this is the prophet. This is the king. He's come. It sounds like revival. They're believing in him. They're following him around, right? Are they disciples? Are they followers? John 6:58. Jesus doesn't feed them bread this time. He feeds them a sermon. And it's a hard sermon. And many of them hear this sermon and they bolt. John 6:66. Many of his note the word, many of his what's it say? disciples. Followers. 
church members, branches. Many of these disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, John writes an epistle later on, and there's this exodus of people leaving the church under persecution. And John's writing, and he's looking to stabilize the church. And he says, look, your salvation is not fragile. You're going to be held. You're going to be kept. Listen, let me tell you something. And John says this, First John 2, 19. They went out from us, same author of John, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Note that word continued. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, the same John who wrote John 15 is writing this passage. And the word for continued in 1 John 2:19 is the same word for abide in John 15. In other words, how do we know that the people who just left, they went out from us? How do we know that they were only artificially connected to the vine? John says in 1 John, because they would have continued with us. They would have abided. They would still be here. They would still be connected to a life-giving branch, connected to a vine that inevitably sends its life into every branch. But they're not abiding. Therefore, whatever it looked like, however loudly Judas sang on Sunday mornings, however much he gave and however much he served, he was not attached to the vine. Dia Carson writes these words about our passage. There is a persistent strand of New Testament witness that depicts men and women with some degree of connection with Jesus or with the Christian church who nevertheless, by failing to display the grace of perseverance, finally testify that the transforming life of Christ has never pulsated within them. Now, this is not a word to disturb the assurance of the disciples in John 15. How do you know that? Because the next verse, right after he talks about every branch getting snipped off if it's not producing fruit, he says, wait, wait, you're clean. Because you've received and embraced the word that I've spoken to you. You are in the vine and you're in it for good. You are already clean. So let's talk about fruit bearing branches. I like to work in the yard. How many guys like to work in the yard? Big yard? Okay, great. Y'all like to work in the garden? Okay. I like to work in the yard or the garden. I'm not safe in the garden. I'm safe in the yard. Um, Everything is green and you can cut it all, right? Uh, If you get me in the garden, I'm happy to work there. I love to clean things up in the garden, but I'm not safe. And so if you ask me to trim something in your garden, say a bush, and you go off, you come back, the bush is trimmed. It, it is trim. It, you know, how long it lives is a separate question. But the, the bush has been trimmed, and the bush looks neat and clean. Um, because I tend to be a little wild with things. And I, I can accidentally pull something. You know, I can look in our garden and I can pull something that I think looks just like a weed. And Paula will come back and she'll say, why'd you pull that? I just bought that from Home Depot. <laughs> and my next thought is, why are you buying weeds from Home Depot? That... 
Not so with God. God is a perfect, wise vine dresser, and he knows exactly where to clip to make you bear fruit. He knows what he's doing. He knows what to look for. He knows how to tend his garden, and he tends it by pruning us is the term that's used here by Jesus. In verse 2, it says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, the word prunes there is the same word for clean. He cleans. It's the same word that's used in the very very next verse when he says, already you are clean. So he cleans every branch that bears fruit. When we are joined to Christ by faith, God begins that moment, a process of cleansing us. Day after day, he comes into the garden of our lives by a number of means, and we'll talk about a couple of those in just a minute. But he comes in and he clears away and he cleanses each branch with meticulous care. God does this. But you may say, look, why is he cleaning, pruning, fruit-bearing branches and then saying they're already clean? What's up with that? Like, I thought I was already cleansed by the blood of Christ the moment I put my faith in Jesus. Well, John 15 talks about two senses in which the believer is cleansed. And the rest of the New Testament talks about two senses in which the believer is cleansed. There is a sense in which the believer is already clean, top to bottom. And there is a sense in which God continues to cleanse and shape and mold and sanctify the believer. Both. So if you're a Christian here this morning, your story goes something like this. And God could do it a hundred different ways, but your story tends to follow these kind of mile markers. You heard the gospel. You heard the good news about Jesus Christ, who he was, and what he has done to save sinful people. To rescue us from our sins, our bondage, and our brokenness. You heard that story. And maybe you didn't believe it the first time, or the second time, or the tenth time. But there was a time when that message penetrated your heart. And you wanted everything he had. And you came running to Christ with open arms. And you said yes. And you put your faith in him. And you turned from your self-made paths to happiness. And you said, whatever you want me to do, God, I trust you. I believe you implicitly. And you embrace him not only as your savior, but as your Lord, master, king, redeemer, everything. He owns the whole thing. He's your treasure and you bought the field. And you would have sold everything if he told you that moment to do it. That's what happened. And in that moment, by faith, everything that Jesus accomplished and purchased in his death became yours. You were united to him, joined, attached, grafted in, whatever metaphor you want to pick from the New Testament. You were grafted into a life-giving vine. And all of his righteousness was your righteousness. And all of his life was your life. And his future is your future. And that's the glory of the gospel. Already you are clean. You're clean because of this. Not because you've shaped up your act or you've turned over a new leaf. You're clean because you've been grafted in by faith. You believed him and that was it. And you were grafted into the vine. And in him, from that moment, you stood and now stand 
righteous in the sight of God. You are already clean because you heard the message and you embraced it. Paul talks that way in 1 Corinthians 6. We're speaking to the church. And he talks, he lists out a number of sinful practices. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were. And a lot of times we say we are being sanctified. This uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you were sanctified, definitively set apart by God, made holy by virtue of his holiness flowing through you. J.C. Ryle writes this. In themselves, believers have no life or strength or spiritual power. They are what they are and feel what they feel and do what they do because they draw out of Jesus a continual supply of grace, help and ability. Joined to the Lord by faith and united in mysterious union with him by the Holy Spirit, they stand and walk and continue and run the Christian race. But every jot of good about them is drawn from their spiritual head, Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is. Glorious truth. It is finished. Your salvation has been accomplished. Now, does that mean, just think about this, you don't have to answer out loud, just think about this. Does that mean you never sin again? No. Does that mean that our sins don't have any impact on our fruit bearing? No, again. Does that mean that we don't, in our practical daily lives, get dirty? No. We do. And so we have not only 1 Corinthians 6 that says you were sanctified, but we have 1 John 1, verse 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and what? To cleanse us. To cleanse who? Unbelievers? No, believers. To cleanse us, wash us from all unrighteousness, all that practical Daily life where your feet get dirty. There's an ongoing ministry of God to every believer by which he actively cleanses his people. How? Well, this passage talks about him cleansing us with a pruning knife. (laughs) Sounds comfortable, huh? Sounds fun. He cleanses us and the father has these pruning instruments that we find throughout scripture. One of them is scripture itself. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How many times do we find in scripture that it's the word of God itself that brings cleansing to our lives? Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it goes on to say, and he washes her with the water of his word. So it's like God's word is a, is a spiritual detergent that cleanses us. And, and Psalm 119, he says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that what? So that I might not sin against you. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word, because his word cleanses and washes our hearts and our minds God does this with his word. His word exposes sin. It exposes places where we need cleansing behind the ears, right? Those those spots that we've missed or we haven't seen. And God's word comes 
And it cuts through us and it says, you haven't washed here. Let me wash you here. How many of you have ever opened God's word at your own house or coffee shop and you've felt the pruning shears cleansing you? Cutting off wrong ways of thinking, cutting off unbelief and doubt and anxiety. Experience that? Raise your hand. How do you experience that? How many of you have come here on Sunday mornings to hear the word preached and you've felt the pruning shears cleansing? More hands. <laughs> cleansing and cutting back. You know what? Glory to God. That's, that's a sign that you are in the vine. That's a signal. That's an indicator that you're connected because that's what God does for every, not some, Every fruit-bearing branch, he cleanses. Every time you feel the grace of conviction weighing on your heart and the gift of repentance to say, God, I confess that. Every time you do that, you're hearing the shears of a gracious Father who loves you. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, Hebrews says. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. <coughs> Let me just add this. God never disciplines us out of wrath. No, all of that was spent on Jesus. All punitive wrath for our sins was poured out on Christ in its totality. Every sin I've ever committed and I ever will commit, the punishment for that sin was poured out on Jesus and I will never experience the punishment for that sin. So why does he discipline us? To wean us off of sin. To rescue us from the consequences of sin. Why? Because he's a taskmaster who has this to-do list. And anytime you paint outside the lines, he comes knocking on your door. No. He knows that sin kills joy. He knows that sin leads to bondage every time. And that bondage creates destructive patterns in your life. And so graciously, he prunes and cuts by his word. To wean you off of sin that you're in or to keep you from sin that's around the corner. And God graciously does that and we should be thankful for it. It's protective, not punitive. Here's another pruning <coughs> instrument, the instrument of trials. J.C. Ra writes, trial to speak plainly is the instrument by which our Father in heaven makes Christians more holy. By trial, he calls out their passive graces and proves whether they can suffer his will as well as do it. By trial, he weans them from the world, draws them to Christ, drives them to the Bible in prayer, shows them their own hearts, and makes them humble. Remember James' words, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience work. Let it have its perfect work so that you may be complete, lacking nothing. You know, so often when we run to a Christian friend 
to get counseling, we are in effect asking them if there's any way possible they can take the pruning shears away from God. And we might as well just say it candidly. Is there any way you can keep him from cleaning me? I feel like I'm clean enough. Is there anything you can give me by way of instruction or counsel? Can you help me avoid the perfect work of patience? Patience has a perfect work. There are things that patience and trials can do that nothing else can do. And God uses them as an effective pruning instrument to clean us. A.W. Tozer says, It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly unless he first hurts him deeply. It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly unless he first hurts him deeply. Some of you have been going through a hard season. And you need to be reminded that in the, the wisdom and providence of God, no hardship is wasted. There's a perfect economy in the way that God cleans his branches. He knows exactly what we can take. He remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. And so he's not whimsically looking at the mess of your life in a certain season and just saying, this is such a mess, and just whimsically clipping everywhere. No, God is calculated and measured and careful. He is careful to manage the trials we face so that instead of breaking us off from the vine, his children will cling more closely and bear more fruit. Finally, what's our motivation for this? John 15 gives us motivation in verse (coughs) 8. By this, by the bearing of fruit is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You know, to say that God gets glory when we bear fruit, let's not let that become so vague and familiar that it's a throwaway line. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them for what purpose? To what end? We're his workmanship. It glorifies God when our lives are full of joyful obedience to him, abiding in him, delighting in his word, (coughs) submitting to his pruning in our lives. This glorifies the vine dresser. There's no way to make a statement about the glory of God and about the greatness of God when we live in disobedience to God. There's no way to make that statement, to throw away that line as though, yeah, I'm just glorifying God without obeying him. No. God's greatness is displayed through our obedience. Nobody ever attaches themselves to someone, to someone's teaching, when that person tells them to embrace something that they don't value, that they don't believe in, that doesn't give them joy. God is glorified in our abiding in the same way that a father, a human father, is glorified when, when, when he invites his son to go out for a snowball. And then on come all the friends and they say, come out to a movie. And the son says, 
I'd rather go get a snowball. And, and not because he pities the dad and knows the dad's going to get upset and manipulate him emotionally. No, because he'd just, he'd just rather go get a snowball with dad. When we glorify God and we value what God values and we walk in his ways, we say to everyone around us, I'm doing this because God is great. I'm doing this because he satisfies my heart. Joy-filled obedience to God, perseverance and faith despite life challenges and obstacles, that makes God look glorious. And true Christians love to be reminded that their obedience brings glory to God. That that's what obedience is all about. It brings God glory. Secondly, experience of greater assurance. Verse 8 again. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. J.C. Ryle writes, The meaning of this promise seems to be that fruitfulness in Christian practice will not only bring glory to God, but will supply the best evidence to our own hearts that we are real disciples of Christ. Where is there some measure of fruit bearing in your life? Don't just think about that now. Go home and think about that. Talk about that with closest Christian friends. Talk about it with your husband or your wife, with members of your family. Talk about where is there fruit bearing going on in my life. You may come away from that much more encouraged than you are right now. Is God's word your delight Are even his commands delightful to you? Have you experienced the gift of conviction and repentance lately? Look, we could ask a host of questions like this. All those things argue that you are the real deal, that you are grafted into the vine and you'll never be separated because his life is full and complete and satisfying and it's coursing through you. And finally, joy to the full. Verse 11. These things, I've said all this. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The primary motivation for genuine Christians to abide in Jesus is not that they better abide or else. The primary motivation for genuine Christians to abide in Jesus and bear the fruit of obedience is that's exactly what we want to do. It's it's our joy to abide in Christ. It's our joy to obey Christ. His commandments are not burdensome to us. He is our joy. He gives us joy. Christians don't manufacture their own joy. We don't work ourselves up psychologically into joy by the number of songs or the way that we sing songs. We don't manufacture our own joy. We get it from the vine. We have his joy, joy that circumstances and hardships, the ones that are coming for them in John 18. Those losses and crosses that will face these disciples and these disciples are still coming. And yet God gives joy to his people that is deep, that is an anchor of the soul, that is unshakable joy. I was at a funeral earlier this week. And I'm standing next to Caleb E. Byer. And we're looking around at so many people. And, and Caleb says, I don't know how anybody could do this. 
without knowing Christ. That so resonated with me. Because the Bible, when it, when it talks about being in Christ or being outside of Christ, God's word says those who are without Christ, outside of Christ, are without God and without hope in this world. It's one thing to be without God. It's another thing to be without hope. And it's another thing to be without both of those in this world. And, and Jesus, Jesus is the one who abides. Jesus is the one who abides in us by the Spirit. And we receive life and strength and all that He has. And you can hear Him dispensing that over and over through the farewell discourse. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. In this world, you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. And you are in me. You're grafted in. My victory is, at the end of the day, yours. Take heart. I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There is a grave note of warning for branches that are superficially attached to the vine. The end of that branch is to be cut off and cast into the fire. It's a word of judgment. And we snuck away this past Mother's Day, me and the kids, to get away from Paula and to make a little video. And so I'll just hit the record button and they'll all get a chance to say something to Mom. And they get all excited about it. And then when they're done, I'll turn the video around and I'll say a few things. And then on Mother's Day, we'll sit mom down on Mother's Day. We'll put the thing on and they'll all be staring at her the whole time while she's watching it. I made the mistake of not calculating the fact that I had a four-year-old girl and I was making the video on Saturday and she just could not wait. So throughout the day, we made it first thing on Saturday. Throughout the day, she's coming up and whispering. She's like, can we show her now? Let's do it. Let's watch the video. Um, and I'm saying, no, tomorrow's Mother's Day. And as the day goes on, I'm getting worse attitude. And finally, you know, by halfway through the afternoon, she's not even whispering anymore. Paul is walking right through the kitchen. Can we show mom the video? <laughs> yes. And so we pop the video in. Yes, I gave in. I gave in. Before Jesus leaves this band of brothers and goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to his father. And we find out the destiny of every branch that abides in him. You know, in a sense, we never really hear what becomes of the fruitful branch. The fruitless branch cut off, snipped, kindling. What happens to the fruitful branch? Jesus prays about the destiny of the fruitful branch. He says in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, whom you have grafted into me, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Now, these disciples in John 15, the only Jesus they saw was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. They saw him day after day, burdened, weighed down, weary, heavy. And they, they followed him, not because he had any beauty or outward form that would attract them, Isaiah says. They followed him by faith. And they followed him to find out they wouldn't sleep in five-star hotels. They would sleep out in the thicket at night and hear stories and stare into the sky because they were following a peasant, a poor man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. All the glory that caused angels to hide their faces and cover their feet was cloaked under his humanity. And when Jesus thinks of the most thrilling gift he can give to these men who are about to go on mission and give their lives for the cause, he says, Father, can we show it to them? Can we show them my glory? Father, I want them to see this. The glory I had with you before the world existed, I'd never seen that. And we think and we do, we experience great joy by virtue of our, our union with Christ. He is in us and his joy courses through us, even in the midst of the hardest times of our lives. And we might even say that we experience fullness of joy. But we don't know what fullness is. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You think you can't wait to see Jesus. He is longing and praying to his Father. Father, I want to show them my glory so that they might be satisfied for all eternity. That they might be dazzled by the beauty and the glory of all that I am. When Jesus says he wants to fill us with joy, he means nothing less than thrilling our hearts for all eternity. His gift to every branch that abides. Let's stand. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand.